This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 7, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Alexa Billow talks with Mercedes Paredes about neurons that migrate in the brain after we're born. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on the emotions of bees. This one went out with a great headline. Don't worry, bees happy. <laughs> Dave, was that, was that you? That was not me. That goes to, credit goes to John Travis, uh, our uh, managing editor, but one of my favorite headlines, <laughs> certainly of the past week. Um, and this story is really about, yeah, well, do bees experience any sort of emotions, whether it's happiness? Optimism isn't really an emotion, but optimism has been tied to happiness. So the idea behind this paper is that bumblebees can feel emotions. But one of the odd things is that bees' emotions are triggered by sugar. Is that really an emotional response? Does sugar affect people's emotions? Well, sugar makes us happy. Oh, it does. Um, it actually has been shown to make us happy. We don't just think it makes us happy. It actually seems to make us happy. Uh, what the researchers did was they first train the bees to recognize a couple of colors. They could go into this chamber that was marked with either a blue or a green tag. Now, if they went into a chamber that was marked with a blue tag, they would get a reward, which was a 30% sugar solution. If they went in with the green tag, they got basically just plain water. So it wasn't very exciting. Then the researchers mixed things up a little bit. This time, they presented the bees with a chamber that didn't have green or blue on it. So the thinking was, well, if bees were optimistic because they knew that sometimes there was a sugar solution in those chambers, they would go for it anyways, even though they didn't really know whether there's going to be sugar in there. And that's what the researchers found. And actually, you can see a video of the bees doing this on the site. What they found was that the bees who had had sugar in the past 
took less time to decide to enter this ambiguous tube than the bees who hadn't had sugar, which suggests they were optimistic about this idea that they were going to get sugar again. And how do we know they're not just hyped up on sugar? (laughs) Well, the researchers also gave the bees a dopamine inhibitor, and dopamine's involved with the brain's reward center. And when the researchers inhibited dopamine, the bees were much less likely to enter this ambiguous chamber, suggesting that it wasn't really the sugar that was motivating their behavior. It was really this optimistic outlook that they thought they were going to get a reward. Putting emotion in a bee and emotion in a human on the same footing and say, oh, well, you know, we're seeing underlying chemicals in the brain doing the same thing. Doesn't that push back emotions really far down the evolutionary tree? Well, right. If you accept that this is actually evidence of emotions in bees, and I think the jury is still a little bit out on that, then it would suggest that these types of emotions aren't just a recent evolutionary phenomenon. And instead, they may have very deep roots in the animal family tree. Next up, we have a story on YouTube yawners. This must have been fun for the researchers. They watched YouTube videos of animals yawning and timed them to find out how yawning differs between species. Turns out, humans are the champs. Okay, does that mean that we're just easily bored, Dave? Well, first of all, two questions. Do we yawn more than other animals do and why? And the researchers had, it seems like a lot of fun with the study because what their methodology here was, was to watch a bunch of cute videos of animals yawning on YouTube. And you actually can see a montage of these videos on the site. They looked at kittens yawning, foxes yawning, walruses yawning, elephants yawning. I've watched these videos. They're very adorable. And what they found was that the animals that have smaller brains, especially smaller brains relative to their body size, and also less complicated brains, brains that had fewer folds in them, yawn for a lot shorter duration than the animals with bigger brains. So humans on average yawn for about six seconds. Elephants were close second, also about six seconds, but a little less than humans. And then animals like mice, about 1.5 seconds. One of the big questions out there is, what is yawning for? Does this variation in yawn length and its correlation with brain size support any particular theory of yawning? Yeah, there's been this hypothesis that yawning is really important biologically, that it may increase blood flow to the brain and help cool the brain down. And that would make sense here because you would imagine bigger brains need more cooling down, therefore you have a longer yawn. What this doesn't answer is why when I watch these videos, and other people probably too, you see an animal yawning, a person yawning, and you catch it. It's contagious. It is contagious. And there actually have been studies done that show that that actually has something to do with our sense of empathy. People that are more empathetic or empathetic to a particular person tend to yawn when that other person yawns. No, I have a hot brain. You have a hot brain. Let's yawn together. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, we have a story on non-humans as mind readers. This is another video-based study, but in this case, the animals watch videos and the researchers watch them watching. (laughs) Yeah, it gets meta, but this kind of research, it's called theory of mind research, is kind of a meta topic. Theory of mind is sort of the ability to sort of intuit what somebody else is thinking, and that's not like psychic mind reading. Basically, what it means is, Sarah, if you are tending to hurt me, say you raise your hand at me. 
my theory of mind can tell me whether you're raising your hand to slap me, to give me a high five. I know what you're sort of thinking, what you're intending. That's what helps us get along as a society. It helps us learn. It's very important for our species, but it's really been up in the air about whether other animals have theory of mind. There's been some studies that suggested that dogs, dolphins, maybe some birds have theory of mind, but they've all been inconclusive. And this study gets to a particular type of theory of mind, which is called false belief. Right. So this is kind of the last bastion of theory of mind, the idea that people can tell when someone else has a false belief that they're wrong about something. So you know what they know and what they don't know. Right. And that's very different than just understanding expectations or intuiting what someone wants to do. Exactly. As you can might imagine, Sarah, it's a lot harder to test that in non-humans than in humans. It's even harder to test it in very young humans. But the challenge here was especially hard because the researchers wanted to look at other primates, orangutans, chimpanzees, bonobos. And so what they essentially did was they created an ape soap opera. And again, there is a video of this. It's kind of hilarious. Right. Let me just describe really quick. I had to edit this video, so I just was kind of stunned by what happens. Basically, they have a chimp or a bonobo or an orangutan watching this video, and they track the animal's eyes. And so to keep them engaged, they had to make it really dramatic, hence the title soap opera. They show a researcher kind of looking at a rock, interested in it. Out of nowhere comes this very strange person. They're dressed in a mask, and they kind of look like a gorilla, but they're obviously not. That person or that mystery primate tries to take the rock from the researcher. They tussle over it, and the mystery primate wins. The mystery primate proceeds to hide it under a box while the person watches. And then the person leaves the room. And now the plot thickens because once the person's left the room, the mystery ape takes the rock out of that box and just sort of carries it away. So now what the, the real ape sees on the monitor is the researcher coming back and about to examine that box where he thinks the rock is. Now, if the ape can sense false belief, the ape should assume that the researcher is going to look for the rock in the box, because that's where the researcher should think the rock is, even though the ape knows the rock isn't there anymore. And indeed, that's what the researchers found. That's what the eye tracking shows, is that the apes gaze really intently at that box because they think that's where the researcher is going to go. Phew. Okay. This is hard to describe, but what's the takeaway here? The ape looks at this box. The person looks at this box. The rock's not there. What does the ape know about the person? What the ape knows is that the researcher's knowledge is different from his own because the ape knows the rock is gone. And for all we know, the researcher doesn't know the rock is gone. If the apes didn't have the skill, they would just sort of assume, well, of course, the researcher's not going to look in that box. He must know the rock's not there. But of course, that's not the case. So these chimpanzees, these bonobos, these orangutans are displaying a similar ability as we would because we would also assume the researcher is going to look for the rock under the box, even though the rock's no longer there. Okay, so this this experimental method where they track gaze and try to see this anticipation of another mind has been done in these great apes and then also in kids. Should they just keep looking? I mean, are we going to be able to do this with dolphins? Well, the real advance here is the technology. It's, it's really because we can't talk to these animals. Can we develop a system that allows us to be able to determine what these animals are thinking when they're watching these videos. So it's like there's a whole lot of thinking about thinking going on here. Um, and so you can imagine trying to run a similar test with birds, with cats, with dogs, assuming you could sort of optimize this eye tracking technology for each species. 
and assuming you can get them to sit still and watch these videos. <laughs> so why don't you tell us what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, let's switch things up a little bit and talk about our policy blog, Science Insider. On Science Insider, we've got a story on if you want to crowdfund your scientific research, here are some things you should know about, some tips. Also, the latest on Zika funding, funding for Zika research and efforts to tackle this virus across the globe. Also on the site, we've got our coverage of all the Nobels that have been announced this week, everything you need to know about the chemistry, physics, and medicine winners and what they won for. And finally, this week marks the 20th anniversary of our online news site. We've been publishing daily news stories for two decades now, and we will have a little celebratory item on the site on Friday that links to some of our first stories as well as some of our favorite stories of the past few years. So be sure to check out all these on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. Now we have Alexa Billow talking about the movement and development of neurons after we're born. The frontal lobe is the region of the brain that controls social behavior as well as the ability to plan and carry out tasks. Extensive development in this part of the brain is likely responsible for our unique human smarts. We know that neurons migrating from place to place during development play a large role in the formation of the brain. What we didn't know is this process continues for months after we're born. Here to tell us about this research is Mercedes Paredes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So first of all, how does a human brain normally get built? That mostly takes place before we're born, right? It's a long process. And you can imagine that putting together the machinery that's the complex brain takes a long time. It has to have a lot of different parts to it. When I think of brain development, I think of it as having some basic fundamental steps. First, you have to have the progenitor cells. Those are the cells that must divide and multiply. And they're the ones that create the different, I would call them cellular building blocks that the brain uses to make up itself. And neurons, the main brain cells, as I think of them, really only make up a part of those cellular blocks. And then all these cells have to organize themselves within the various regions. And for some cells, like neurons, they have to travel really long distances to get to their target areas. And then the last big step in this whole process to make the brain is that they have to become functional. And so to do that, they actually have to go and integrate within these regions of the brain. And that takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. For neurons, the old dogma was that they were made and they migrated all during the fetal period. So during development of the body, the brain was doing a lot to divide it and make all the cells it needed and to get the cells to where they needed to go. But now, as you can see from our work and other people looking at the intricate steps, especially for the human brain, we're understanding that there's a lot more migration, a lot more activity that's going on, even just in the first months after birth. What's the difficulty in studying the frontal lobe and how it develops? Part of what makes the frontal lobe such a challenging area to study is that it's so complex. And actually, it was once thought that in the human frontal lobe especially, that evolution expanded its size. Now I think we're understanding that this might not be the full story. There's been a lot of recent comparative anatomy work and great apes like gorillas, and they suggest that it's not really the size that makes the human frontal lobe so unique, but just how complex in its connectivity. In fact, this makes sense in that neurons in the frontal lobe are really well connected to other brain structures, and some people would argue that it's the most connected region of the brain. 
I think that the challenging part to look at the frontal lobe is that because it's so high functioning and it's so interconnected, how do we break down these circuits? And how do we both maintain the circuits so we can understand their real structure? And then how do we break it down so we can see how it was built normally during brain development? And I think because it's so much more complex than other species that it's tough to study it in animal models. We're really limited in that. So complexity is one of the really big challenges. So how do you go about actually studying the development of the human brain? First, I think given the uniqueness of the tissue that we look at, these are really precious tissue samples that we get during the brain development from late gestation to birth and a few months after life. And so we really have to be precise in how we study it. So a lot of our work begins by looking at the animal models and seeing what can we glean from those studies. And then we have to kind of step back and say, okay, with the samples we have, how can we answer a developmental question, which really is developmental questions I think of as questions that travel through time. And we have to work with tissue that is static. And so we have to almost put together this puzzle of, okay, with these snapshots that we take at different ages, how do we put together the steps that we think are required to make the normal human brain. So this complexity of the frontal lobe, is that why it potentially needs to keep developing after birth? Is nine months not enough? I think it's such a complicated structure that it takes time, not just for all the pieces to get together and reach their appropriate areas, but I think it's also a way to allow for malleability. You know, the frontal lobe is involved in such high cognitive action that it really has to be intricately put together. And to do that, there have to be times when you can change the circuit, even after birth. I think this allows for different external stimuli. So any new sensations, when a baby is just born and starts to hear voices, or when it finally starts to be able to see things a little bit more clearly, all these stimuli can then influence the development of the brain, but only if that region was still developing. So for me, I wonder if this long, protracted process in developing the frontal lobe, is it a way for that area to fine-tune its makeup? These babies are already living human people, and they've got neurons just kind of hiking around in their brains. How do they do that? Yeah, and I like the word that you use. These guys are like traveling hitchhikers in a way, and it's a really complicated process that they have to do to get to where they need to go. And the neuron, when it does this, has to follow really specific and synchronized steps to be able to move the whole body and to get to the right place. The neuron that's migrating is really polarized. It has a front end and a back end, almost like a car. This whole polarity is defined by the structure called the leading process. And so the neuron first sends that out, and it extends it in the direction of where it generally wants to move. And this leading process is also thought maybe to be a sensor for the environment. Like, is this the right area? Am I going in the right direction? And then after that, the cell body and the nucleus have to follow the leading process. And this is called nucleokinesis, where the whole structure of the rest of the neuron translocates in the direction of that leading process. And then finally, the back end, the trailing edge of the neuron, then pulls itself in. With all that done, then the cell has now finally moved one little step. In the research, you say that all the migrating cells had characteristics of inhibitory neurons. Can you tell us a little bit about what they're going to do once they get where they're going? Inhibitory neurons are 
a small population of the total neurons in the brain. They make about 20% of the total neuronal population. And they really play a big role in both the development of the cortical network or the cortical circuit of the brain and maintaining its normal function. They keep the balance of excitation and inhibition of the brain. And this is really fundamental. This balance is really required to maintain normal and organized brain activity. So when something goes wrong with this, then, for example, there can be disorders like epilepsy. They really are a key component of regulating the activity of the brain. They're also thought to regulate cortical plasticity. And that's the the ability for the brain to reorganize itself, even after it's pretty well built. This plasticity is tied to these processes called developmental critical periods. These periods are stages during development when the cortical circuit is still very malleable and can actually adapt. So it's really sensitive to external stimuli. So any sensory input that a brain is getting can have an effect on the cortical circuit. So when the developing brain is bombarded by these new stimuli, such as when you start to see things or when you start to hear voices as a baby, then all this has to be sorted out. And interneurons are thought to play a key role in this whole information processing. So this early three-month period that you report on, does that correspond to any of those particular critical developmental milestones? So the first three months are really exciting for a kid. And I imagine for the parents watching their infants, it's a time when they're paying a lot more attention to faces, even starting to smile. There's better refinement and smoothness to their movement and their arms and legs. But when these neurons are arriving during this period, we also have to remember that they're still immature and probably not fully functional. So it's going to take time for these neurons to get to where they're going to become mature functional inhibitory neurons and to integrate, connect with the other neurons already there in the circuit. So these guys might not fully exert all their influence until later in development. So the milestones they actually might be affecting could be later. So things like when a baby starts to increase vocalization, have more emotional expression. So I think it's really exciting to think about, as we understand these steps more, stepping back and looking, how do they tie into the behavior that we see in infants as they grow? In the paper, you have these live cell images. Can you specifically describe the methods you use to capture those? So we first looked at post-mortem, so autopsy brains, with high-resolution MRI. So with the resolution that you could get, we were wondering, can we see some of these migrating streams in an intact brain? Well, if we can see it in these autopsy samples, is there any way we can maybe even one day follow them in patients? So in the paper, we show that with a couple of cases, we were able to go back and look at brains of premature kids that were imaged during their care in the hospital. And when the cases where they were able to and have withstand and have a little bit of a longer sequence and get one of those high-resolution MRIs, we were able to identify the structure, which was really exciting for us, both just to kind of see this in vivo, I think was really fun for us to be like, wow, this is a real structure in the human. A goal is always to try to bring it back to the person and say, not only can, can we understand the basic building blocks of what it takes to make the human brain, but can we use this information in the near future to say, okay, we know so much now about the basic steps. Can we recapitulate this when a brain is injured? Or can we intervene if we know that there's a disease process going on? Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. It was a lot of fun to talk to you too. Mercedes Paredes and colleagues write about the migration of young neurons and infants this week in science. 
And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.